0: Life, the universe,
1: and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless, on Radio Live.
0: Coming up later this hour. Part two, uh, as we head into the end of World War One, 100 years ago. So each Sunday leading up to, and including, November the 11th, when that historic occasion took place, um, we will be hearing from Glenn Harper, what happened in that week heading towards its merciful, merciful end. It's called, Jesus, make it stop, taken from the poem by Sigrid Sassoon, called, The Attack, if you wanted to look it up. And speaking of poetry, We're going to do a thing on poetry next week. We're going to start it off. Uh, Is this going to go down like a thing that goes down really quickly? People hate poetry. um, The deal is, I'm going to people, some of them famous, hopefully some of them not famous. What's your favourite poem? But the clincher is why. Why is it good? Tell us about it. What are you getting from it that I'm not hearing, maybe? Or maybe I will hear it once it's explained. Or usually it just takes a little bit of an explanation. And first contestant, who will be coming on down next Sunday night, CK Stead. Oh, what a writer. He gets two poems. Why? Because he's CK Stead, all right? He's awesome. After that, I think Steve Braunius will be stepping up to the plate. We'll see if we can get Sam Hunt, and he's not allowed to read one of his poems. Okay, that's the thesis. We'll see how it goes, huh? It was a suggestion from a Facebooker, so... Yeah, okay. Um, That's the sort of thing i do for you. If you want to be part of the conversation, go to the Weekend Variety Wireless Facebook page. I'll be posting something. We'll see if Facebook uh, remove me for posting it after I done it. It's the thing about an Anglo-Saxon king, strangely enough, but it's the presenter. It's the presenter. I started really, so I'll have to finish, won't I? His name's Michael Wood and he's looking at the camera in tight jeans and walking around making Cambridge-Oxbridge like sense, uh, talking about history. But the jeans are too tight, okay? And, oh, my word, they're looking for the Loch Ness Monster in the wrong place. Also, we have a book on offer, Kākapō, Rescued from the Brink of Extinction. That's one hell of a story. Um, I mentioned in the interview, which I recorded this week with Alison Balance, the author, It's a reissued thing, it's all been updated. It's almost 10 years ago it was written. So it needed to be updated, it is. And it's the best book on the subject you can get. So that is the book that we have on offer. But um, we'll give you a whole week because I forgot to mention it yesterday on the show uh, that all you have to do is email that you would like the Kākāpō book and you can explain why, if you like, you can suck up. But I'm just gonna put them all in uh, a box and randomly draw a winner next sunday night no matter what i say during the interview later on so there you go i think that's the best way to do it it'll give you at least a week to enter away tell your friends and uh, they can uh, be in the draw as well okay and then the story of richard henry oh my word i maintain he should 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 be on our money uh the world's first conservationist a new zealander uh, Richard Henry of Resolution Island, that story after 11 o'clock. So it's kind of a Kakapo double. I thought they'd go nicely together. We shall see. It's 10 after 9 o'clock. Next up, Skeptical Thoughts with our guest skeptic, Jess McFarlane of New Zealand Skeptics. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. It's Rain Bullshit. All right, time for Skeptical Thoughts and from New Zealand Skeptics, ahead of the conference, actually, which is happening uh, very shortly in November. Jess McFarlane. Hello, Jess.
2: Hello Graham.
0: When is the conference tell us about it first of all?
2: Yes yeah, so it's on um, the 16th through the 18th of November and it's at Butterfly Creek in Auckland, which is right next to the airport there.
0: All right what happens at a skeptics conference? They notoriously terrible joiners <laughs>
2: um do you know what it's actually it will be my first time (laughs) this year so i haven't actually been to one yet but um there is an amazing group of uh speakers lined up and they'll be covering things like um science in the media pseudoscience critical thinking um yeah okay should be should be
0: good all right and you can look it up using the obvious methods on the internet all right here we go Uh, this billboard got taken down it was an anti-vax billboard Uh, tell us about this yes Uh,
2: so Uh, It was put up by um, Waves NZ, which is Warnings About Vaccine Expectations. Um, And these guys had the plan of actually having it up for a whole month. Um, They put it up on the 1st of October, but it was taken down on the 2nd of October, which is a really good result, if you ask me. Um, The ad company actually decided to take it down um, and... The Advertising Standards Authority apparently had received about 140 complaints about that. Wow. So yeah, it um, really did make people very angry. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, What were they claiming? What did the whole thing say?
2: Um, So it had an image of a father holding a young baby and um, Yeah, I don't want to dwell too much on what it actually was, but it was basically, it was saying, um, it was putting doubt into people's minds about vaccines and actually trying to put across the idea that they are dangerous rather than, you know, as we all know, all the diseases that they prevent.
0: Yeah, and, oh, my word, the... The amount of suffering that has been averted through vaccination is hard to imagine, hard to appreciate. Mm-hmm. That's, I think it's one of the grandest achievements in human history to make smallpox extinct, except for a little bit in a jar somewhere.
2: Yes, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. I, I think we're so lucky to live in this age that we do where we're not seeing crippled children with polio and awful mm. things like that. But we still have infants who die of whooping cough because there's not enough um people in the community vaccinated
0: yeah. yeah and uh there are a lot of communities around the world that it's really hard to make it stick as well which is such a shame especially when it comes to polio in places like india pakistan and east africa
2: yes
0: yeah, yeah. all right um We've kind of forgotten about the dangers of diseases a bit. As this is a, the anti-vax thing, I do get a bit of a feeling it's, a, it's kind of a, a luxurious attitude to have where they really are uh, relying on the goodwill of other people to keep them healthy.
2: Oh, absolutely, yes. It's it's all about this, the herd immunity, which is where you need a certain number of the population vaccinated. Mm. Once you get to that point, then, yeah, you don't see those diseases breaking out as much as you would. Um,
1: yeah.
2: And and really, yeah, it's people who um, can't get immunised that, that protects and that we need to be thinking about when we're getting a, a jab ourselves. It's the people like the... Very, very young infants who can't get the jab or, you know, Jacindara Dune, she had to um, take special measures because her wee child wasn't immunised yet when she went out to the, um, there was that conference out in the Pacific Islands recently. Oh, really? Yes, yes.
0: Oh, she left the kid at home? Why wasn't it vaccinated? She's not an anti-vaxxer.
2: No, no, it was just uh, that she was too young. We need was way too young. Oh,
0: really? Okay. Um, Roald Dahl's daughter, that's a sad story, tell us.
2: Yes, oh my goodness. So she was um, eight years old, I believe, and um, she got measles, which a lot of children were getting at that stage. Um, And this is one year before the vaccinations came out, and there were, at the time, just so many children getting this illness in particular. But um, it's, there's a really sad story about where um, she basically deteriorated over the course of, like, 12 hours, and um, her father was holding her hand, making um, a little animal out of a pipe cleaner and sort of showing her how to do that, and then she just lost the ability to use her hands and just didn't seem to be able to get the brain and the, and the hands working at the same time. And then, yeah, it was, she just said... Dad, I feel really sleepy. Oh.
0: And then 12 hours later, she was gone. It was awful. All right. Okay, the position the anti-vaxxers are coming from, the vac- and vaccine opponents, um, I have an idea that they're uh, smarter than the experts. They know. The experts yes. are having a sign. Yes, yes. This, uh, this idea,
2: is, it's, I looked into this. Um, And there was an article recently in um, the spin-off, which um, was all about this study that they did in in America. And they looked at um, 1,300 Americans, and they actually did... um, They confirmed the Kruger-Dunning effect, which is this uh, idea, or um, it's a psych sort of proposal where... If you know a little bit about something, you get this sense of overconfidence. Yeah. Um, so it's equivalent of like having spent a few hours on YouTube and, and looked at some celebrity telling all about this stuff in a confident way. But then when you start actually learning about something and go into medical school, for example, Then you go, oh, jeez, there's a lot more to this than I actually thought. And then as the years go by, you go, oh, my God, there's there's way too much. I'm never going to get to the bottom of this. And then finally when you get out the other end, like eight years later or however many years later, you're like, right, uh, this is complicated, but I get it.
0: Yeah. But Uh, uh, There... I think there are some people uh, f- for whom they have a subject of, of interest. They actually know less about it than someone who hasn't heard of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we've got a little cut here from this Veritasium uh, thing. Derek Muller, he's a YouTuber, is he?
2: Yes, yeah, he's a science communicator. He um, was born in Australia. He's uh, Canadian Um, He's done uh, heaps of um, YouTube videos and actually ended up working with um, uh, some, what's his name? That guy. That that guy. (laughs) I'll think of it in a
0: minute. You think of it, here he is.
2: Yeah.
3: Research has shown that if you're repeatedly exposed to the phrase, the body temperature of a chicken, that's right, the body temperature of a chicken. Even if no useful information is given about the body temperature of a chicken, you are more likely to judge as true this statement. The body temperature of a chicken is 34 degrees Celsius. It's not, by the way, it's actually closer to 41. But this finding highlights an important aspect of our psychology that plays a huge role in how we see the world. The things we're
0: exposed to repeatedly feel more true. Hmm, all right. Um, You can go and find more of, and just look up Derek Muller, Veritasium. Yeah. Okay, the spin-off article and... Oh, look, I've actually got a cut here. I, uh, a bit of audio from a guy called Donald Henderson, who should really trip off the tongue to every single human being on Earth. Um, he was the man that headed the team that got rid of smallpox. Here he
1: is. There was a, an effort made to assess the number of people who died during the 20th century as a result of wars. World War One, World War Two, all the wars that were fought. And that there was far less than the number who died of smallpox. Finally we period. had the last individual. We didn't know he was the last until some eight weeks later. His name was Ali Milan. Ali later became well known of having led polio vaccination programs in Somalia and actually died a natural death while
0: he was vaccinating people against polio in somalia yeah hats off he died recently actually i think just a couple of years ago donald Henderson, oh. the man behind making smallpox extinct what an achievement
2: wow. yeah Let's
0: speak about uh, the world health organization which uh he was uh, certainly knew, knew the bunch um and he was part of now they can't, don't get everything right either, and they should be experts, shouldn't they?
2: They, they should be. They are looked to as authorities, um, and quite often these alternative health people will write on their websites things like endorsed by the World Health Organization, so, mm. yeah.
0: It has um, a lot of prestige.
2: It does. Yeah.
0: Okay, but um, a, a bit dodgy at the moment. They are endorsing some woo-woo.
2: They are, um, yes. There was an article in Forbes um, by a guy called Stephen Salzberg, um, who basically said that the, the WHO endorsing traditional Chinese medicine is going to result in a whole lot of deaths. And I think what he was referring to isn't just humans. he's really was pointing out the trafficking of of animals like rhinos and tigers and the poor old pangolin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I recently visited the Canterbury Museum and there's was a stuffed pangolin in there. Um, and I just thought, oh, you <laughs> poor little bugger, you really are stuffed now. How
0: did they come to this conclusion to actually endorse it? There's no, aren't they, shouldn't they be evidence-based?
2: Well, yes, you would think so. Um, Yes. It seems to be tied up in in some kind of money or um, there's there's people high up in the organisation who've had uh, ties with traditional Chinese medicine. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's nothing new being discovered scientifically as far as it actually being effective or anything. Yeah. yeah.
0: Bears, tigers and rhinos, leave them alone. It's just an appalling suite of animals, isn't it, they seem to be perpetually interested in.
2: Yes. And it's it's utter nonsense. Yeah. I and mean, a rhino horn. It's it's made of exactly the same thing as your hair, your fingernails, it's keratin. Mm. There's nothing to it at all. No. Okay,
0: I have a little bit of audio here from a YouTuber I rate quite a bit. His name's Miles Power. He's talking about jelly juice. We'll talk about it in a mo, but it's freaky. You can go find Miles Power on the internet. Have you got an internet? The
3: woman who wrote this book is gonna get someone killed. In fact, I'm fairly sure she already has. In the past, I've published videos and blog posts warning vulnerable people about these potentially life-threatening, complementary and alternative medicines and the vultures who prey on their desperation. Now, recently, one of you lovely people from the internet sent me something in the post. So, oh, it's another book. <laughs> The book is called The Jilly Juice Protocol Exposing the Lies, Candida, Weaponized Fungus, Mainstream, Meat. Yeah, that's what it's called. And originally when I opened it, I thought, wow, this is going to be a fun read. Um, this is going to be like absolute nutter butters. It'll be hilarious. I'll point, I'll laugh, I'll have a good time. And within about 20, 30 pages, I realized that it wasn't like that at all. This book has the real potential to kill people, and I believe it already has. And not only has it the potential to kill people, it's gonna make sure they suffer before they pass away. Now the core of Jillian's beliefs, now Jillian is the author and the woman who is pictured behind me, is that Candida, a opportunistic pathogenic yeast, is responsible for everything, all our ailments, everything. And that her jelly Juice can eradicate it from the body. So, what is jelly juice? Well, jelly juice is Himalayan pink salt, water and cabbage or kale blended and left for 3 days. So, what does this Jillian believe her jelly juice can actually cure? Everything. She thinks it's the ultimate panacea. She believes this fermented salt water cabbage juice can cure Everything from cancer, to HIV, to autism, everything. And it gets so much more stranger because she believes this stuff can also help you regrow limbs. (laughs) Like arms and legs and things. Honestly, I'm not making this up. She's not a Poe. She honestly believes this. She believes downing gallons and gallons of this stuff a day will help you regrow your arms and organs. And she also warns people who are homosexual that maybe, you know, if you drink
0: this juice, you've got to be careful because it may cure your homosexuality. <laughs> oh! Um, what even next? I mean, the, this is one of the big warning signs, isn't it? You make great claims um, and you what will it cure? Have a look at how long the list is and then uh, you really have uh, no other option but um, having to play... Yes. Bullshit.
2: Warning, warning, bullshit
0: but these claims are outrageous, aren't they?
2: Oh, they're unbelievable. <laughs> it's just, yeah, they're regrowing limbs. That's, that's quite out there. I've just, I've never heard anything so bizarre.
0: Quite a serious tone to Miles Powell, though, because he believes somebody's already died uh, because they've employed this thinking it's going to cure them of something.
2: Yes. Um, yes. There was, um, she was on Dr. Phil, actually, Mm. of all places. And um, Dr. Phil was even incredulous about her claims, which was really saying something. Um, Yes, there was a guy called...
0: Was uh, it Bruce with his pancreatic cancer?
2: Yes, that's the one, Bruce, yes. Um, So Bruce was... uh, very far advanced with this pancreatic cancer Um, and he decided the way to go forward and to cure his cancer was to try this jelly juice and he really just went 100% in. He Mm. didn't have anything else and his family said that he just, he wasted away at the end and it, it must have been an awful and painful death, it was really... Really sad. Salty,
0: rotten cabbage stuff. I don't know where she's ca- yes. far out. Anyway, what are the what, what happens if you drink this and you you know you're reasonably healthy?
2: Yeah, well, it's it's going to be like drinking seawater. It's going to dehydrate you, um, and that's going to it's going to be bad. I mean, and I, I know having had um, kids, it, they diarrhea is. I mean, this is what this stuff causes. Diarrhea can be really dangerous if it goes on for a long enough time. Mm. It's going to lead to organ failure eventually and potentially death. This isn't, you know, it's not something to be taken lightly.
0: Yeah. Um, This has got a parallel, at least it rings a bell for you, with Ian M. Banks and his starvation cult.
2: Yes, that's right. I love Ann Banks, he's a great writer. I'm um, very sad he passed away. Um, but there was a book, Consider Phlebus, chapter six, uh, was all about the eaters, which is this cult of people living on an island. And basically, they would eat just awful excrement, just all the gross stuff that they could find. And it was a way of going. Um, making themselves closer to the fabric of fate, and they would eat things that other people wouldn't touch. But yes, it seemed to me that like what they were eating, it's not like farts, which is exactly what the guy in the video said that the stuff tastes like. Mm. Um, they had, um, a, they, they seemed to rename things to make them seem, I don't know, more spiritual or something.
0: Yeah, um, diarrhea is called waterfalling.
2: Yes, yes. That's right. So you can't call things by their actual name. And in the book, it was bodily products. Um, Yeah. And it was also the idea is if you're failing at using this stuff
0: it was your fault it wasn't the product oh psychics love that too don't they oh no I'm getting a message no 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 one by that name well that's who it is I don't know you're not trying hard enough (laughs) that's right (laughs) yeah um okay uh that's a really sad thing you can go check out Miles Power's piece on this because you you and I both know Jess there are hundreds and thousands of these whack things out here out there uh and (laughs) All of them are potentially dangerous, but this one is simply quite outstanding, isn't it? And the woman's quite yes. famous.
2: For yes, it. she is, yes. I mean, one of the other things that is, seems absolutely mind-boggling is that she says that her jelly juice will change your blood type. I mean, that I mean, would be able to be proven wrong. With a simple blood test, mm. we could get her to do it on air, I mean that's what the guy in the video was suggesting. I
0: think that's a damn good idea. She yeah. Should do that. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Jess McFarlane from New Zealand Skeptics. Enjoy the conference and just to celebrate the great man again, whom I th- think we should know his name, Don Henderson, behind the smallpox eradication. Nobody thought it could be done, and he said, "We'll give it a go."
1: Over time, it has been the most severe plague that man has ever experienced. Far worse than plague itself or cholera, anything you can mention. The threat of Ebola is minor compared to what the risk of smallpox was throughout history and on up until the time of eradication. In 1966, we had more than 10 million cases and two million of the people died. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless, on Radio Live.
2: At dawn, the ridge emerges, massed and dun in the wild purple of the glowering sun, smouldering through spouts of drifting smoke that shrouds the menacing scarred slope, and one by one tanks creep and topple forward to the wire. The barrage roars and lifts, then clumsily bowed with bombs and guns and shovels and battle gear, men jostle and climb to meet the bristling fire. Lines of gray, muttering faces, masked with fear, they leave their trenches, going over the top, while time ticks blank and busy on their wrists, and hope with furtive eyes and grappling fists flounders in the mud.
1: Oh Jesus, make it stop.
0: That famous last line from Siegfried Sassoon's poem, the attack, uh, by way of introduction, to this ongoing little thing we're doing about the last days of World War One, leading up to Armistice, which will be a Sunday this year, uh, November the 11th, and one of the momentous occasions in history you've got to say and to walk us through what was happening week by week leading up to this is Glenn Harper military historian author of many many books on the subject Glenn thanks for being with us again. you're welcome Graham it's a pleasure to be here all right the significant events and action between September the 30th and today October, the 7th. What happened from what you described last week? Germans are really cracking. What happened this week?
4: Well, as I mentioned uh, last week, September had been a terrible month for the Germans, and um, they had been on the receiving end of a massive offensive from the Allies and a very coordinated one. So there were attacks going on across half the Western Front, over a hundred uh, divisions actually a- attacking, and the Germans had no answer for this combined, coordinated offensive. So at the end of at the end of September, when they're reeling backwards, and um, they hear news that uh, some of their allies are collapsing particularly Bulgaria um, in a moment of clarity Ludendorff decides that the war needs to be ended and tells the vice Chancellor um, so they appoint a new uh, so they, they appoint a new vice Chancellor of Germany the Imperial Kaiser appoints a new vice Chancellor as Prince Max of Baden and Prince Max is a renowned liberal he spent most of the first world war working for the German Red Cross and is known to be an advocate of of, uh, of a early peace so he comes in in the early days of October. He's actually appointed on the 30th of September and in that first week of October one of the first things he does is actually send a note off to Woodrow Wilson which is described as short and simple and it's requesting Woodrow Wilson to organize and arrange an immediate armistice and for peace negotiations to follow based upon the 14 points which Wilson had enunciated back in January
0: 1918. Uh, Okay so why didn't the war end then uh with the 14 points were they shall i say quibbling are they unhappy with what the outline of an armistice was going to be from wilson oh well, the
4: the germans weren't unhappy the germans had approached wilson um on the assumption that he would be a much easier person to deal with and would be a bit of a soft touch and negotiate a uh, softer armistice for them. Um, but Wilson, while he was, while the United States wasn't an ally, he was an associated power, and the, he had to let his uh, associated powers, i.e. France and Britain know, and France and Britain were not very happy that the approach had come to the United States, which had joined the uh, fighting somewhat late in the war, and they basically said there's no way that they could agree to an armistice if they didn't take the lead on it. And if they weren't in in at the negotiations from the beginning so there's the wrangling between the allies which delays it and when, uh, and, of course, when the Germans realise that, hey, it's not going to be so easy and they're not going to get an armistice, which is not the end of the war, it's just a, an agreement to stop fighting for for a time, that they're not getting the armistice on their terms and it could probably look like an unconditional surrender. L- Ludendorff, the man calling the shots, actually has a change of heart and actually decides they should fight on. But that's a little further down in October. In the first week of October, that note is dispatched to Wilson. It comes as a surprise. Wilson consults with his allies and there's all this going on as to how this process should pan out and who's going to take the lead on it and that's why there is a considerable delay to actually negotiating and signing the armistice of several weeks.
0: So the 14 points didn't end up being identical to the Treaty of Versailles signed in that famous railway carriage?
4: No, it's the armistice that's signed in the railway carriage. The Treaty of Versailles is signed, signed six sorry. months later. Um, no, the uh, the 14 points um, are somewhat ignored. And I've got to say the Germans uh, have a bit of a hide to expect that they'd get a peace, tra- uh, the, sorry, the end of the war uh, on the 14 points. They've studiously ignored the 14 points. They never applied them in their peace negotiations with Russia and the Treaty of brest litovsk or in Romania. With the Treaty of Bucharest, so uh, why they th- they think they're going to get special treatment is is, a, is somewhat a, of an illusion on on their side, although they they expect it and and they are really um, taken by surprise when the, this. Uh, peace process, this armistice process, turns out to be much more difficult and and they can't dictate the terms. And the actual armistice terms are really harsh and they're terms that only a defeated nation would accept. But that's further down the track, of course. That doesn't come until the second week of November.
0: All right. Germans are in a state at home and on the front. It's not good. Just on the human side of things, do we have much of an indication on what the German morale was like the soldiers on the western front with the mass desertions and just such a massive sacrifice from Germany yet looking like it's going to be all for nothing it must have been hard to take. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, the, your, your points are,
4: are very uh, opposite. Um, the German army is falling apart. There's no way uh, no getting around that. they have being decisively defeated on the Western Front. They peak with their armed force on the Western Front in May of 1918 with some 208 div- eight divisions. Um, as a result of this 100 days offensive for the first week of October, they're down to 50 effective divisions and of course they're ha- having to hold off nearly 123 attacking, uh, divisions of the of the allies they are going to end the war in November with just four effective divisions left that's a catastrophic defeat in any term so uh their armies falling apart there is massive desertions there are also in an indication of this is for the first time uh, and this happens from August the 8th German soldiers are surrendering in large numbers this is where we see batches of thousands and thousands of German prisoners just laying down their arms and deciding they're not going to fight anymore there are a massive amount Amounts of desertion, as I say, the army, the, the army that German he has in the field in October and November is crumbling, and I've got to say the German military authorities are well aware of this, and it's one of the reasons that they want an armistice and have agreed to an armistice uh, uh, that they need one in early October. But as I'm pointing out, that that getting to an armistice is not as easy as it looks or as it sounds, and certainly it's not going to they're not going to get it on the terms of Wilson's 14 points.
0: The dreadful state of Germans, uh, the German soldier in Germany, was that common knowledge? Because I could imagine uh, there would be some incentive to keep it a bit quiet because it's... Not as if the Western powers, uh, Britain and the Allies, weren't feeling tired either. I mean, nice to be on the move for once, but if uh, Germany was collapsing and that was really, really well known that it was pretty over for them, gosh, I'd be tempted to put down my rifle and go, well, let's, let's stop.
4: Uh, yeah, the I mean the Allies were in in better shape than than Germany. I mean the the British Expeditionary Force they were they were running out of men and they would had to call up a lot of uh, young soldiers, but they were still able to to operate effectively. I've got to say the Australians are on their last legs because they don't have conscription and they can't replace their losses. The the, the French are, are getting back their fighting spirit, but it's the I think it's the American soldiers on the Western Front and at this time that makes a difference. That's just starting to warm up, you know. Uh, they now have some 40 odd divisions um, in France. A uh, American division is twice the size of a of a uh, British or f- or French one, so that's the equivalent of really uh, 80 divisions, and they're only just starting to get into the fight. So um, the Allies, are, compared to the Germans, are in are in good shape. Did did the Germans back home know the state of their military? No, they didn't. They had been suffering immense privations and on the understanding that that was a necessary sacrifice to win the war and up until the last month or so, they were under the impression that they were actually doing pretty well and that the victory was just around the corner. Unfortunately, they're going to be in for a rude awakening come
0: October and November. But did the Allies at home, the press for instance, know the state of the German forces in London, in
4: New Zealand? The soldiers were starting to realise it, but the the, the the press and the governments back home and even the military authorities weren't aware of the parlour state of the German army. And indeed, they'd made actually military plans to carry out their main actions in 1919, and the Americans were thinking long-term as to be fighting into 1920. Um, when the German army does start its collapse, and it starts with the Black Day of the German army on the 8th of August, it does come as a surprise as to just how... The, how easy it is to now take ground from the German soldiers, how many of their soldiers are laying down their, their arms at the first opportunity, and really how little fight is left in them. Having said that, there are several elite units of the German army that is fighting well. They particularly build up defences around their large numbers of machine guns, and their machine gunners will fight to the last man. This is not an easy or cheap victory for the Allies. They are still suffering massive amounts of casualties in those final months of the war.
0: There were No cheap or easy victories on the Western Front, unfortunately. What was Adolf Hitler doing at this time he fought in this conflict? Was this a formative time for him, uh, leading to the cause that he was going to
4: lead? Absolutely, it was a formative time for him. He had been he had joined very early in the war. Um, he had become something of a war hero and did win the Iron Cross. Um, surprisingly, though, when Germany was crying out for junior leaders of talent, he never rose above the rank of lance corporal. Um, he had been involved in the fighting in uh, in. In August, September, but had been wounded. He'd been badly gassed. uh, I think it was about about the start of October, and for the last months of the war, he was actually recovering from that gassing in a in a hospital some eighty miles from Berlin. And I have to say, when he hears the news that the Kaiser has abdicated and that the Germans have asked for an armistice, he is absolutely shocked. And he describes it in Mein Kampf as the greatest villainy of the century. And uh, he's determined to uh, to put things to right when he can and he also claims it's in my camp that when the armistice is announced that's the time he announced decides that he's going to go into politics so he can overturn this great villainy and the fact that and he really believes is the fact that the german military has been stabbed in the back by all these all these no-gooders these social democrats the 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 big businessmen and jews that's who who he blames and so this is a very formative
0: time in the mind of adolf hitler And he has time to lie in bed and let it sit in his guts like a broken bottle.
4: Absolutely. And he he does dwell on it. Um, He also makes a protest for which he becomes well known for. He used to have a big handlebar moustache. But um, when he learned that the Kaiser had abdicated, he actually trimmed it off to that little toothbrush, that moustache that we know so well. And that was done as a form of protest after he heard the Kaiser had
0: abdicated. I had no idea. All right, what were New Zealanders doing on this day? Did we have a break? And where was Bernard Freiberg?
4: Uh, well, uh, a couple of things. Yeah, the New Zealand division was having a bit of a break after the capture of Crevacourt on the 1st of October, and they would be put into the, the front line in carrying out further offensive actions um, in the second week of October. But the first week of October, they were actually having a bit of a break. Apart from the New Zealand Tunnelling Company, which had actually been rushed forward to build a bridge over the Canal de Nord at a place called Haverincourt, and they spent the first days of October very, very busily constructing this bridge. Bridge, which will be actually the largest single span structure built during the war, and um, it's an impressive engineering feat. So impressive, actually, that uh, Field Marshal Haig actually visited visited. Twice, and the second time he takes along a guy called Samuel Gompers, who's uh, a Labour uh, official from the United States. Um, and they build it in eight days. It's a great achievement, and it lasts for quite some time. You know, they're the first other the ones to actually put this bridge across the Canal de Nord. Uh, one of their one of their great achievements. Now, Freiburg is actually not with the New Zealanders. He's one of the youngest brigadiers in the British Army, and he is commanding a British brigade uh, further north of, of the New Zealanders.
0: But as uh, but as heavily in action during this time and one of those people as we mentioned last week that saw the conflict in Gallipoli and all this stuff on the western front and managed to come out the other side but not unscathed well,
4: yeah, absolutely not unscathed. Uh, Freiburg uh, is uh, severely wounded on several occasions. He is uh, awarded the DSO for his services at Gallipoli for that famous swim that he does up to the coast of Bulea to distract the Ottoman Turks. And um, at uh, on the Battle of the Solomon, a place called Bokor, he actually has awarded the Victoria Cross, which one senior commander believes is the greatest act of gallantry during the war. Not unscathed. And I have to say, one of his wounds will eventually kill him. It's the um Gallipoli wound uh, that that actually ruptures when he's sleeping uh, w- uh, much later in the early 60s and and uh, that's what actually uh, kills uh, Freiburg in the end um so certainly a a time of of great uh injury for Freiburg a time of of, of forming his character and a, a magnificent soldier but uh ultimately
0: will pay the price for his military service as well remarkable to think that I think I'm right am I not he would have been the very first person ashore at Gallipoli.
4: I think you're right, actually, but not not at Anzac Cove, um, up further north at, at a place called Bouleu, carrying out a diversionary operation where he's actually landing and lighting fires and trying to attract attention to himself. So, yeah, certainly, uh, if not the first, certainly one of the first to get ashore at, at, at Gallipoli for that uh, for that invasion, and um, and once again a remarkable feat of arms. Uh, lucky to survive. Actually, he only got picked up by accident, and that was always the the poor part of that plan. He was to swim ashore light some fires but they hadn't actually thought how he was going to get back again and uh, he was lucky that somebody saw him floating in the water and, and, pulled, and pulled him aboard uh, so he lived to, to fight on and, and um, actually had another a remarkable career in the First World War
0: and even more so in the Second World War. There are, of course, other arenas in which this world war uh, is taking place. Otherwise, it wouldn't be called a world war. Let's talk about the Middle East. There was quite a bit happening in the Middle East at this time. And, of course, it would have resonance for decades and decades, a century on, really, when you think about it. Now, what was happening with our Ottomans on October the 6th? Damascus, Beirut. Yes, well, this was the uh, this was the uh, week that Damascus
4: fell, and um, there's some debate as to whether it was the Arab Legion under with uh, fighting with uh, Lawrence of Arabia or whether the Australians entered Damascus first. But it was a bit remiss of me not to cover the Middle East in my previous talk about what's happening in September, because um, on the 19th of September, Al- Allenby, the general there, launches a battle called Battle of, uh, of Megiddo, um, which is actually the turning point battle of the war the Ottoman Turks and it actually defeats them so badly that they're not able to put up any more fight and they're in constant uh, retreat from that battle and the forces in, in the Middle East, the Egyptian expeditionary force, follow them up and are pursuing them and it's on this on, on this week that Damascus uh, falls and uh, of course the Arabs claim it um, as, as part of their being the liberation force and the British let them have it um, and unfortunately there's a lot of chaos happening in Damascus in, in that first week because the Arab force don't have the wherewithal to run the infrastructure particularly hospitals and roads and transport and and stuff so certainly a lot happening in the Middle East and you're absolutely right we still live with the legacy of the uh, the, what happened uh, at, at the demise of the Ottoman Empire the creation of these new countries the creation of mandates and we still live with the legacy of the First World War in the Middle East and people speaking French in Beirut Oh yeah, ab- absolutely. Beirut, Lebanon, what uh, was supposed to be a French sphere of influence, one of the one of the mandated to the to the French, um, and of course there there had been this um, infamous carve up of this region with the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Uh, of course, they uh, the this was one of the dilemmas. The British, to get the Arabs on site had promised them that they would uh, they would liberate their countries and they'd be free to rule them. Um, but the Sykes-Picot Agreement actually carved up this region between France and Britain, and They were, and of course there was this factor of oil being the oil-rich region, that there were several countries with a vested interest in this and France and Britain were not going to let their interests go by any stretch of the imagination. And of course there's all these problems and there's the Balfour Declaration, which promises a homeland to the Jewish people, um, becomes a very complex, um, a bit of a complex area, really like quicksand. Uh, No easy fix, no quick solutions, and there's still no quick solutions to the problems in this region.
0: No, and those troubles, um, they certainly didn't start in 1948. It was uh, around now, wasn't it, a hundred years ago? Yeah, absolutely. The problems of the Middle East are definitely a legacy from the First World War. There are four weeks to go to see the end of this horrific conflict, and we will be guided through what was going on on each of these weeks with Glyn Harper, renowned military historian and author of many books on the subject. Do look him up. Glyn Harper, we'll talk again next week. Thank you very much. You're welcome, and certainly a lot more to cover.
1: Oh, Jesus, make it stop tuned in
0: to the weekend variety wireless. All righty, another reminder because I've failed to remind you at all yesterday that we've got this beautiful kakapo book on. Offa kakapo rescued from the brink of extinction, uh, one best science writing. We have an interview with the author later on this evening. In that interview, I say we'll draw a winner at the end. Um, no, we're not. I'm going to keep it open to, for a whole week and we'll draw a winner next Sunday to give you much... Oh, well... A better amount of time to enter. All you have to do is go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, use the email form, say that you'd like the book, include your postal address so we can mail it out as soon as the winner is drawn. It'll you know it'll be on the Monday. Um, not mm, this Monday, but the following one. Okay. News sport and weather coming up next.